But now we are. Now we're recording. Um, raise the mic up more so it's sort of level. <laughs> <laughs> I just hit myself in the face with the mic. Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, this is part two. You know, like the sequel's always supposed to be better <laughs> than the first one. Okay, you've had your fun. <laughs> okay, now that we're done hitting ourselves in the face. There's still time for you to accidentally hit yourself. <laughs> That's true. Face. I was hitting the mic yesterday <laughs> when I was with my hand motions, but it wasn't it wasn't that funny. Anyway. You're right. It wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> this is infinitely funnier. Um, <laughs> let's begin. Okay. Part two. Uh, if you listen to part one, we did a lightning round of a bunch of movies we, last, we watched in the last like six months because we haven't done an episode in a long time. Wait, I just want to pause because... Yeah. I'm pretty sure that what you're going to do is use the sound effect that's like 10 hours later. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, this one, uh, because it was uh, it was part one and two. I wanted to do like the, the voiceover from that show 24, where it's like the following takes place between 12 a.m. and 1 a.m. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say I want to do that sound from 24. That's like. Dit, dit, oh, yeah, we could do that, too. <laughs> I also want to because we've been watching. Uh, be- for some reason, there's like a law and or, or a law and order marathon going on. It's actually called the Lara Nara marathon. Um, Marinara uh, marathon. No, I think that it's just the We Channel just like plays it now. That's like yeah, but it's do. like on 24 hours a day. I think that's like um, kind of their new thing. So now, like the the bum bum sound is like in my head all the time. So we'll have to add that to the podcast. Is like. No, 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 not that one. I know, not that one. I was just giving an extra. <laughs> they don't. The, uh, the audience does not deserve this extra. Okay. <laughs> not yet. They haven't proved it. We'll see how many plays this. Episode yeah. Gets. Well, you know, all of ours are starting to hover. All, all of them are starting to hover right below a hundred listens each. Because I bet you, if you get a hundred, it like you get knocked into like a different level of. <laughs> and then SoundCloud has to start paying you. I don't know. No. Um, no, but I, a different level of like promotion or like discoverability. Uh, no, I just don't. I just don't think that anybody listens to us yet. Some people <laughs> do. Ninety-nine people do. Sure. Ninety-nine people. Some fourteen of them times. Are the same person. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It does count that. All right. So we left off last time talking about The Witcher. Oh no, uh, The Wicker Man. Yeah, I'm like, sorry. We certainly didn't because I've never seen The Witcher. We watched like the first five minutes of The Witcher. Yeah, and, and then I was like, like nope. Meh. we really are like we okay we're either like very smart and decisive or we have like zero tolerance for a single moment of boredom it's not that it's uh that the witcher was boring it's i just have no patience to like you know what i don't like is uh, okay so uh you have a scene that the opening of the witcher is like he's like a monster hunter so the first scene is like this deer drinking by this stream and then like he pops out of the stream and he's like fighting this giant like crab like monster. What? I missed that whole thing. Okay. So you only saw the boring part where he's like talking to some guy. He like travels through like some sort of portal and then they were talking in like the pub. There was like this other woman who yeah, was like, I'm strong and independent. Babe, I didn't I didn't see this you, at all. You were in the room, but you're looking at your phone, I think. So anyway, so see a episode I saw a piece where like a girl gives him a coin and he, and he's like she wants to be a witcher and he's like you can't because you're a girl 
something uh, like that. I, I, I must have left the room, and then you saw that part, and when I came back, I turned it off. Oh, oh boy. But the opening shot is like, so it's supposed to be this cool monster, he's fighting it, but it's about maybe two minutes long, and there's like an edit every second. It's like, it's supposed to be this pristine. One of your pet peeves. It's so stupid. It's like, it's supposed to be like this pristine forest with this like murky like water. How could it be a pristine forest with so many edits per minute? Yeah. It's like that scene <laughs> in uh, the uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, I know. You hate that. Yeah. It's like nauseating. Just let it breathe. It's not even like the physical action makes you sick. It's like emotionally. You just want to kill yourself. Yeah. Because it. <laughs> what it says is that the editor doesn't think that the scene itself is exciting enough. So you have to like inject energy into it. But what... If you're going to make something like scary, it's like, okay, here's like this little deer drinking and it's like very calm. And you're like, oh, something's going to happen. I know it. I know you're waiting for it. And then it pops out, but it's like cut, 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 cut. And you're like, I get it. Something's going to happen. There's like a difference between teasing the audience and then sh- like just outright telling them before it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It just ruins like the experience. Anyway, I thought it was stupid. So we didn't watch the rest of it. So anyway, anyway that's so that not had nothing to do with today. <laughs> uh, we were talking about the wicker band and then we had about like 45 movies that we watched oh, gosh. that we have to talk about. So I think the bulk of this episode is probably going to be the Irishman slash Godfather. So do you want to get the other movies out of the way that we saw? Like the, yeah. Um, but like, here's the thing. We watched the Irishman like what a month ago. We've already had so many discussions about it. I don't remember. Uh, November we said. at the end of November it came out. Really? Yeah. We saw it before we got married. Yes. It came out like November twenty something, and then we watched it like that weekend. Huh. Yeah. That feels like not that long ago. <laughs> anyway, we have talked a lot about it already, though. Sure, but we can. We haven't talked about it a lot in the context of the other mob movies that we've seen. That's true on this list okay um so let's take a let's take care of the smaller movies because there's a couple of movies that we saw in theaters yeah. that we had some issues with <laughs> <laughs> you know if we watch any if we can see many media i think you can count on us having some issues yeah um so uh before we get to the two movies in the theaters we saw uh we watched the lighthouse yeah which we talked about this in part one there are some cool things in it but the whole like genesis of the story like when you read about what it's supposed to be you're like Meh. yeah you're like maybe you should have kept that part to yourself right. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. does not enhance my enjoyment of the story in fact it it detracts from my enjoyment of the story right it reminded me of the end to uh annihilation yeah where you're like what why 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 is this happening for the viewers at home, Joey's making a very confused slash annoyed face. <laughs> you can really tell because a lot of what just happened was silence <laughs> <laughs> and just hand well, gestures. Well, uh, Annihilation is like, okay, so <laughs> like imagine that you have like a really delicious cake in front of you. I do think that we talk about how much we hate Annihilation on probably every episode. Every episode, yeah. It's I just... freaking hated that yeah. thing. <laughs> I'm so mad. We saw I want for, my ten dollars. Or we saw it for free. We had we had free tickets to go see like any movie. I still and we, think that we should get paid fifteen dollars. I think so. We should have complained to the box office manager. Honestly, <laughs> annihilation. You is don't like, know me very well if you think that I'm past that. I'm not past that. I could definitely yell and complain. Yeah, and also the movie cut out halfway through. Do you remember that? Yes. And then somebody clapped. <laughs> 
I'm not above. Uh, can I speak to your manager? Sir? Sure. I mean, in that instance, we were just. I, I think even the. We, did we take a cab home or something like that? I, I was worried that we were annoying the driver because we were just screaming about how much we hated yeah. this movie. No, I do, we did take a cab back. I remember we were talking about cancer. Oh, right, right, right. Because there's like some interesting ideas in there, but none of them. <laughs> this is what happens when we see a movie that we hated. And to justify it, Joe and I make up our own meaning about the movie. That's like a hundred times more interesting than the actual movie. <laughs> we're like, that was, a, I have, I'm satisfied. I got something out of that. Right. Because uh, mostly just the conversation afterwards with it, my very smart husband. And, <laughs> and we'll talk about another movie where we re- rewrote it in the cab home. What? That we Uncut just saw. Gems? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's finish The Lighthouse. We're getting off topic. I mean, all three of these movies have some things in common. Um, the Lighthouse, Annihilation, and Uncut Gems, which is... Yeah, like, they're all stinkers. <laughs> yeah, watching all three of them, I was like, is this shit over? Yeah. The Lighthouse was... Uh, I know people love Uncut Gems. And there were some parts of it that I, I would say, to rank them, I liked that one the best of the three. Um, I actually... Uh, if Yeah, if you're going to do the... Out of those three, I actually like the lighthouse more, uh-huh. even though I didn't think that the aspect ratio where they did a, a square aspect ratio or slightly squarish was supposed to make you feel claustrophobic, but it didn't. That I thought that was really ineffective. I thought You're I would have such thought, a nerd. It's but if you just watch that with like something that's like widescreen, yeah, in that same environment with black and white, it would be a totally different movie because you're supposed it's supposed to be about like uncomfortable claustrophobia but what about like the wider expanse being so small in a bigger place i think that's more frightening than claustrophobia now if the director's like claustrophobic and that's like the signal that he wants to send fine but like i don't find that unnerving and that's supposed to be a whole point of the the movie is that these guys have to be with each other in a small space but imagine being together in a small space with this bigger area around you that you cannot escape they can't leave the lighthouse and go anywhere. They're like on a little island. Well, they had a boat, but they chopped up the boat, remember? Yeah. But I mean, like they can't, it's not like they could just like leave and just like walk to a road. Right. You know, they didn't say, it didn't say anything about like the wider, you know, like uh, we talked about in part one about at the end of Wicker Man when he has like the sea in front of him in the village behind him. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing, but we never see the scariness of what's in the other direction yeah. in the lighthouse. Mm-hmm. But the black and white photography is great and i thought willem dafoe was really uh, good and i actually thought robert pattinson was pretty good too yes i was just about to say that he was he was good too and like the stuff that happens is like interesting like there's like a lot of cool like imagery and like weird dreams and stuff like that but the addition of all that stuff like the solution is like who cares in the end there's no i don't know there's there's no point to the movie and at all (laughs) yeah it feels like at all like the whole crux of the movie is that the Willem Dafoe is a lighthouse keeper who's keeping the light itself secret from Robert Pattinson. And that just drives him insane. And when he finally sees the light, he goes crazy, ends up naked at the base of the lighthouse, having his guts eaten out by seagulls. Like it would have been nice if he had freaked out, tripped over the edge and fallen to his death. And then it turns out he's still alive, but the birds start eating him. Just that little clip would have been nice, regardless of whether it's a allegory for Prometheus or not. I mean, like that little thing just links Prometheus anyway. Just the way that man gets fire, like yeah, and like some people say that Willem Dafoe is Prometheus, and like that he's keeping fire from everybody, and that the and that humans like are 
cannot control themselves. So they'll do whatever it takes to get to the secret, you know, like you can't keep a secret from anybody. Uh, that's such nonsense. Yeah, just whatever. I would say I would rate that movie like five out of ten. But the five is like cool stuff. Like the like the scene where he kills the bird is really cool. And like um, when the, the photography of like the ocean and like they're waiting for like the boat to come and it doesn't come. It's like all very haunting and very beautiful. But like I would give it a four out of ten. I truly didn't find it compelling for yeah. the most part. Sure, it was beautiful, black and white, but it's really hard to like get engaged in a movie when it's black and white like that. I felt. Um, I and don't have for that. half the movie. I couldn't understand what the hell they were saying. We had to put it on subtitles. Remember? Yeah, yeah. What is it with people mumbling in movies? What is it? I don't know. <laughs> Just speak clearly. It's okay. Um. Yeah, it's fine. Just speak clearly. I mean, we also had to put Deadwood on subtitles. Yeah. But like, also that's because we're like, what did they just call him? Yeah. <laughs> I think that they're talking about this guy, but I'm not sure. Yeah, and they just curse so much that you're trying to decipher what's between the curse words. But I do. You know what I appreciate about Deadwood? That they call people dudes, which is historically accurate. Yeah. I was like, nice. Nice. Kyle Bunga. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so that's enough about the lighthouse. Enough about the lighthouse. Um, uh, we don't have okay, to talk George much Costanza. about this, but we watched this documentary on Hulu about George Lazenby, who played James Bond in one movie, and his like ascent into becoming uh, James Bond after being like a, a car salesman. And then immediately after, he was like, "Yeah, I'm good. I don't want to do that anymore." Yeah, I'm out. And they offered him like a seven picture deal and like millions of dollars. But the documentary is really interesting because it's only interviewing him as uh, you know in in current time as an old man, but they use actors to recreate all these like moments in his oh life. Oh my God, it's so good. And it's like very cute and very silly. And he has like a great storytelling ability. Yeah. I really like that. Even though I don't like James Bond, it was really interesting just to see a, this interesting person's life and how he became to like Britain. Like that's like a badge, you know, on their lapel is like James Bond. Of course. And anybody who gets to play James Bond is like royalty. Of course. So how did this man leap from nothing, backdooring his way into it, basically lying, admitting he lied, and then they still picked him. Right. And then also when he was done, he was like, I'm good. I'm going to do something else with my life now. Yeah. Just very, very interesting. He didn't um, do it for the fame of it. He just did no. it because it was like, sounded like fun. Yeah. Like that almost said he could. He did a lot of things in his life because he could. Yeah, and he also had like a a tragic like love story. Right, yes. And just like a normal guy though. It's it was it was interesting because you can imagine it being your uncle or like whatever, right. your neighbor. Just everybody has an interesting story. Right. Like you're like, Oh, I grew up with this guy George on the street and we never thought he'd amount to anything and now he's James Bond. Or he was James Bond and now he's still selling cards again. Yeah. Like what? Okay, um, whatever, man. It was called Becoming Bond. I would definitely recommend that one, even if you don't like James Bond, which yeah. we don't necessarily. But I like James Bond, but not in the way that like you like mafia movies. I don't sure. Know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like the way that people like. It's the same way that people like Doctor Who and and things like that. It's like kind sure. of the same. Yeah. Uh, fan base. Two days ago, we watched Boys Don't Cry. Mm-hmm. Um, I had never seen it, which was surprising, because it's like. I'm their key demographic. Like I'm, it's really in my wheelhouse of stuff that I would like. Yeah, like Appalachia adjacent. Appalachia, 
LGBT small town issues. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hillary Swank. Yeah. Oh, actually more Chloe Sevigny is like more my right, in my right. <laughs> But 90s um, stuff. I, this is the first time I had seen it in like 20 years, like when it came out. Watching it now, it seems I thought it was rather t- tame. It real pretty tame. Um, not tame. I should say just like it's not as shockingly explosive as you would be led to believe. Yeah, yeah. It was more. I mean, it's horrifying, obviously. Right. But you see it coming a mile away. Not the, not least of which because the movie is like twenty years old now. Yeah. But I think knowing all that we know about hate crimes now, it's more like you can see it coming a mile away. Sure. Yeah. I just think that the the movie takes too long to get to its point. You know what I mean? Like the point of the the movie is the story is over after he dies. Right. Right. But what I'm saying is that because this person was just a normal, obviously in that world, he wasn't normal to them, but a normal person living their life. And to me, that was, it was just unremarkable until they get to that point. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? What I actually found interesting is that everyone in the movie is like, why can't you just be a lesbian? Right. And I'm like, yeah. Thinking in the early 90s, I was like, still not a cool thing to be. Right. And they don't really explore. Like, they're going to be so accepting if Brandon's like, okay, fine, I'm a lesbian. Right. Exactly. Like, that would have been like less heinous. Yeah, right. They yeah. obviously would have hate crimed him anyway. I, I wish they had m- talked more about, like, I don't know, like her journey into i'm oh, sorry his journey into being into becoming trans to making that transition like we just start off and he's already in that point but i it would have been nice to know like in the past like how he came to that point and like the struggles that he faced getting to because like we see him he's like kind of mastered hiding himself kind of you know for the most part yeah. like 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 the trials and tribulations of getting to that point he has a routine for sure. Right. But yeah, I was thinking that too. And like before he assumed the name Brandon when he was going by Tina still, like obviously he had a rap sheet. He like got in trouble many times, which is the case with many LGBT folks who like aren't supported by their families and like don't have a support system network. Mm -hmm. Nest work. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, that's terrible. He just laid a big goose egg. (laughs) whatever <laughs> whatever it's man okay. but i'm just saying it would have been no, I, I, I was thinking that too that it would be interesting to see brandon's like earlier years yeah and, and it may just be the fact that the movie is going for the shock ending so we got to get into the story because the story only takes place over the course of like two months mm-hmm. that's like in the movie even um, though it seemed like even less than that yeah like she's only with that family for like a week before they're celebrating Maybe. her birthday Sorry, he. Sorry. It's just force of habit. It's hard. I know. <laughs> I know. Because the a- the actor isn't trans, so it's like I just go to Hillary I Swank. I know. And because it was made pro- in the 1999, so obviously they couldn't go too... F- this was as like shocking as they could be. And the movie's still pretty shocking, but like you said, ultimately tame compared to like what has happened like in the last 20 years. Compared to what has happened and compared to like even the other media about like queer people. Sure. That we've seen. I just thought I would, I want to know more about him, but it was just kind of like, okay, let's get to the love story and then just cut it there. Yeah. And I also think it's interesting that like in the description of the movie by whoever, Netflix or whatever, mm -hmm. it was like, 
a young man falls in love, like meets a woman and falls in love. And I was like, do they really fall in love though? Or is it more just like lust? Yeah. Yeah. You, you have a crush on someone that you just met. Like they didn't even know each other for more than a couple days. Right. But whatever. Yeah. But I, so I just think it's interesting that that's like the framing of the story that it's like a love story. It's not, it doesn't have to be a love story to no. be tragic. Right. Or interesting. Yeah. yeah. Or like validated. It's a very Hollywood because they're like, well, how do we make this connection? How are you going to feel for this person? Because, you know, in the scene right before he gets shot, you know, you're like, oh, these two people are in love and that nothing's going to tear them apart. And that you have these two bullies it's who a very are Romeo and Juliet thing, like in yeah. the way that they're teenagers. Yeah. I, and I don't, don't know, know if like, that what love is. And I don't know if that did their relationship justice, because I don't know how much we truly know about because I thought that the girlfriend was shot too because three people died were supposed supposedly died that day i also would have been interested to know how they caught the two guys Mm -hmm. and how they figured out like what happened that day like who who confessed and like i i think it's really telling that this story has to be framed as a love story in order to like win over the audience like if like i'm straight i can recognize love i know what love is yeah like Like, (laughs) i'm a good person i know what love is but like also it doesn't why does Chloe Sevigny's character have to like love this person as opposed to just like like them and like be a good person and not want another human to be hurt for zero reason. Right. Cause they don't really explore her complicated feelings. Right. Like when she discovers that Brandon is actually a woman, like, but Brandon's not a woman. I, I, I know, but like she has female body parts, correct? Yes. Okay. So when she discovers that, but she doesn't discover. Brandon tells her. No, they make her look at her in the bathroom. They remember they strip Brandon. Yeah, but Brandon said before in the jail, like I have women parts. He's he said that he has both parts, both male yeah, and female. That's true. But like Chloe's character's complicated like feelings, like how like there's no exploration of like how she felt in that moment, like seeing that, and then saying, you know, I don't care about that like i think more she was probably feeling just horrified watching who she thought were her friends like totally brutalize another human sure more than anything like regardless about how she felt about brandon i think it's just horrifying and shocking Mm -hmm. situation like not to go into her feelings about brandon or like her sexuality or whatever like it's probably not even that at that level it's just like yeah extremely traumatic situation I guess I'm saying that only because they focus so much on the love aspect of it. Like, I mean, there she had to have been also feeling some complicated feelings like, okay, this is a trans person, but I, f- I feel this certain way about him, mm-hmm. you know, especially in know 1990. Like, even got to that level. It's more like humanity and like interest in getting to know someone. It's mm-hmm. not like, that's why I'm comparing it to Romeo and Juliet because I don't think Romeo and Juliet is like a legitimate love story, controversial opinion, but... <laughs> They're like 15. Like, what the hell do they know? Yeah. They don't. They barely also like saw each other at a party one day and they're like, oh, I'm in love. Yeah. D- really? Are you? Yeah. Now, and I thought that he that he was going to fall in love with the other girl. Candy. Yeah. Candace. Yeah. Yeah. The one who is short haired one. Yeah. Who is not related to Peter Sarsgaard. It was, the relationships were very unclear. And is Peter Sarsgaard the murderer? Yeah. That's who that is? Yeah. I never knew who Peter Sarsgaard is. No, I think he's Sarsgaard. Sarsgaard. And then there's another actor whose name is Stellan Skarsgård. 
Peter Sarsgaard is married to Maggie Gyllenhaal. Maggie Gyllenhaal. Really? Yes. That's who that is. Yeah. How interesting. Yeah, the guy from Garden State. Yeah, from Garden State. Interesting. Yeah. He plays the same character in Garden State, but less murderous. Um, yeah. <laughs> slightly less Appalachian. Yeah. And slightly less murdery. As if he that character lived in New Jersey. Yeah. Wow. How interesting. Yeah. Stellan is the other Alexander Skarsgård's yes. dad. Yes. But I know that there's other Skarsgårds. But yes. you're saying this is a Sarsgaard. This is a Sarsgaard. What the hell? This is like there's two guys in Hollywood named Judd. <laughs> Apatow and... Nelson. Nelson. Why, though? <laughs> Judd? <laughs> and then Sa- there's, there's a Sarsgaard, not to be confused with the Skarsgaard. What the fuck, guys? Yeah. Get it together. <laughs> All right, enough about Boys Don't Cry. Yeah. Not a movie I feel like I ever have to see again. Um, I'm glad I watched it, though. Yeah, it's like a... Oh, you know, the other thing I was going to say was um, I was reading that after this incident happened and then, like, the Matthew Shepard incident, uh-huh. that that prompted lawmakers to sign, like, harsher yeah. hate crime laws. Yeah. Like, I, I, I guess that wasn't the movie's purpose, but I wish that, that it had delved a little bit deeper into that. Like, what is the legacy of this horrible thing? What are the sort of the positives that come out of the situation that people are, you know, further protected when they didn't have that right? You know, who becomes like the sacrificial lamb? Well, I'm lamb? sure it wasn't immediate because of based on the way that the police officer was questioning Brandon, it was like. Oh, sure. But but from the time from when it wasn't actual, compassion from the beginning for him. Totally. Uh, but I'm saying is that the movie came out in 1999 and this happened in like 91 or whatever. So yeah. there was obviously like a good chunk of time where those laws came into effect. So there's plenty of time for the movie to like sort of yeah. make mention of that. Anyway, I just think a missed opportunity. I think like when you have an opportunity like that, you have an opportunity to like engage the viewer beyond the fictionalized story mm-hmm. and let them know like the legacy of that. Yeah. All right. Do you want to say anything about little women? Yeah, I loved it. Okay. I know you didn't even see it. And I, in fact, I came in to the house after I saw it and I said, you probably wouldn't like this, but it was one of the best movies I've seen in a long time. Well, you know, I liked um, Lady Bird, but on a different level, because for me, I couldn't identify with any of the characters in the movie, but it was still an entertaining movie. And yet, after I saw Lady Bird, I said I identified so strongly with sure. this movie. And similarly, I identified very strongly with Little Women. Not well, even I'm not even a diehard Little Women fan like sure. a lot of women my age are. I have a lot of friends that were just like really deeply into the books. Right. Uh, wh- uh, what's the name of the director? Greta Gerwig. Yeah. Uh, she just makes movies for a very specific type of person. Yeah. You know, and, and that, that's me. fine. But like I can't. There's like a little bit of a uh, like a bar for me. Like I get to a certain point. It's like I can't get beyond it's because it's not. a feminine not, viewpoint for sure. But Not that it doesn't make it a good movie. It's just like I can't. No, it's just like um, I. I like know. I don't have the experiences like in Lady Bird, I don't have experiences of like a seventeen year old girl. Yeah. Like anything that happens in the movie I never experienced in my life. But so you know, Jackie and I who are both very we're different kinds of girls. Yeah. But both of us had the same reaction to both movies. Sure. That both of us felt that like she really hit the nail on the head of like some very specific emotional experiences. Sure. And I was like, Yeah, this ring's really true. Especially in Little Women, there were like a few moments of tenderness between the sisters especially the two that are like particularly contentious and they mm-hmm. have even in that relationship like 
a few moments of um, just like real tenderness, and just that rang very true to mm-hmm. me. And in Lady Bird, there was a f- there were a few moments of the relationship between her and her mom mm-hmm. that were also like fraught, complex, and like also very loving. Right. And that ran rang very true to me as well. Mm-hmm. Do you think that Little Women and Lady Bird are kind of the same movie? No, no. no. The they share some some DNA for sure, but mm-hmm. like Little Women is about the family relationship and mm-hmm. Lady Bird is about um, going out into the world on your own. Coming of age. Because I don't, I don't know. I don't know I mean, anything Little about Women. I mean, Little Women is so. about that too, but it's more about... It seems like it sort of goes beyond that because Lady Bird is like this contentious period like before you go to college and before you consider yourself an adult and like what that means to be like butting up against that and like how that interacts with like your friends and your family and how you appear when you come out, when you walk through that door and you come out into the other side, how are you as an adult in the real world? And like all the pressure that that has. To me, the reason, one of the reasons why I thought it was named Lady Bird, aside from that being her nickname, is it's about being pushed out of the nest. Mm -hmm. And Little Women, okay, so Greta Gerwig didn't pick the title for that, obviously. But it's about the seeds that are like planted in you and to for your identity to form like within the context of your family Mm -hmm. and how that pattern plays out through your life. Mm Mm-hmm. That's what it's about to me. But uh, I guess uh, it it goes beyond the that that period of once you've come of age, right? Because it, it extends further into these women's lives, right? Yeah, I think also Lady Bird is like, we we leave her at the precipice of like ev- the world. Right. She could have anything, especially because it's more or less modern times. So sure. She could make her own destiny if right. she wanted. Little Women feels more like their paths were predestined for mm-hmm. them. And they're just following the paths. Trying to deviate. Not really. I mean, they're both like, all four of them are kind of like, this is who I am in life. Mm. And like, let's play it out. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is interesting how their paths like bob and weave together. Sure. Especially their sisters. They're all very different, but they love each other. Mm -hmm. It's Uh kind of like exploring four ways to be in the world. Right. Of maybe infinite ways to be. Sure. But. um, Well, uh, hold on to the the character arcs of those women at being siblings and let's compare it to the godfather the four brothers yeah uh when we we get there interesting because i want to see because obviously as our respective genders there's things that we experience differently and how we view uh you know how we would view four brothers living together and four sisters Mm -hmm. living together Mm -hmm. so let's let's hold on to that anything else you want to say about little women okay Uh, <laughs> all right. What do you want to talk about? Uncut gems or parasite? Oh, let's talk about parasite real quick. Okay, parasite. I loved the director's earlier movies. He did this movie called The Host, which is about a river monster in Korea that comes out of the water and starts to eat people. Oh my god, this has Joe Rodriguez written all over it. Okay, so he also did Okja, which is like yeah, a I similar monster movie, but like more big-hearted it's than a happy monster. Movie. So. In the host, the the dad from Parasite. I didn't know that he did Okja. I guess I did know that. But yeah, and he did Snowpiercer, the I one about that. the train. Yeah. I think he did Memories of Murder. Of Butter. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what it's called. Also with the dad from, from Parasite. Uh-huh. So in the host, his daughter is kidnapped by the monster and taken to like its underground lair. And so him and his sister and his brother have to not only fight like the 
uh, Korean like police who are trying to like cover everything up, but they also have to try and, and kill the monster and save his daughter. And like at first they think that she died, so they're going through like this grieving process, and then they realize that she might be alive. And like there's a lot of familial it, like, like Parasite, the family is very fleshed out and they seem very real, and the interaction between them is like very genuine. Um, because like the the dad character like runs like a snack shop um by the waterfront where he sees the monster for the first time his sister is um a like olympic archer archer archery archerist what would you call him archer an olympic archer i suppose um and then his brother is like in is like kind of a con man but he's like into like technology so they all have like these interesting skills that they bring to help like track down the monster i bring the skill of archery (laughs) I like the director's earlier movies, but there was just something about Parasite that really got under your skin. Did not impress me at all because I don't know if you've seen any like You're hard weird. To well, the thing is, if you've seen any weird Korean movie in the last twenty years, and you've seen a lot, a Parasite is not shocking in any way. Okay, but I think that most people probably haven't, babe. Right. So that's what I'm saying is like that. I don't know when viewed from a lens of if you've seen any other kind of movie it's just tame but like the outsized reaction of everybody is that it's wild and it's like just that reaction just really bothers me for some reason because i don't know if if that's the only movie you've seen i guess it's shocking but (laughs) (laughs) if if you've only seen one movie in your life you're gonna love this one yeah it it just i I don't know i just felt like a, a starter movie that i think his earlier movies deserve more praise than this one okay interesting what are you looking at underneath the wine thing under i can't see from this angle do you want to stop and get up to investigate so that you know no okay where were we parasite i know but what were we saying about it no now it's your turn to oh to talk about it yeah (laughs) (laughs) is that how this podcast goes yeah i think so okay i actually liked it i didn't love it but i liked it a lot of my friends like went ham on it and yeah loved it but whatever i definitely thought it was going to be a scarier movie yeah i thought it was going to be funnier because a lot of his other movies have a lot of comedy to like sort of break up the horrifying things that are happening. There were some like funny moments. Yeah, but, but not as much as that's injected into his other movies. Mm-hmm. Like in the host, there's like a there's a scene where they're grieving for the daughter that think they think is dead, and they're all just weeping hysterically and like kicking each other to like get closer to like the weeping area, and it's just it's it's obviously like tragic, but it's also very funny at the same time. I didn't think there was any of that sort of subtlety or cleverness in in parasite mm-hmm. i just thought it was very like straightforward i don't know no, like no i didn't feel tension or like um i mean i thought that all of the details were very interesting like the way that they make the ramen out of the sirloin the way that um the the room is hidden behind like that dresser the the wine rack or it's like a medicine rack yeah, I don't know what it is. Yeah, it, it had bottles in it. I don't think it was a medicine rack. I think it was like... Oh, sp- or spices or something? Or tea? Yeah, I don't I don't know. Yeah. No, I meant the downstairs one. Yeah, in the basement. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's like... Not the uh, upstairs pantry door, but the downstairs one. No, no, no. One. The it's downstairs like one has like... furniture. Yeah. It's like a bookcase or something. Yeah, but it has bottles. I'm pretty sure it had bottles in it. Yeah, I think it was a wine. Yeah, wine it was either wine or like tea or loose... Whatever. Whatever. It was very interesting. The, uh, I don't know, the idea of the dad writing letters down there very mm-hmm. interesting yeah i'm the son writing letters to the dad rather right the son writing lit 
No. Was well, it the dad writing a letter to the son or the yeah, son writing a letter? No, to the, the dad? dad was at the end of the movie when the dad is trapped in the basement, he's doing the lights, he's flickering the lights. Mm-hmm. And then the son writes him a letter and you think that he's like in the future that he's bought the house and that the dad can come out. But it turns out he's just like writing that, that that stuff is not actually happening. Yeah. But he also has a traumatic brain injury. So you don't know if that's real. Right. There was just like a lot where and there was also like voiceover for the first time in the movie. Like at that point, Mm -hmm. it just seemed a little weird that I I did enjoy the movie. I thought it was good. Again, it wasn't quite as clean as we like. It didn't even have to be clean i just wish it was more because like when i think of a a parasite i don't know i think of something that is disgusting from the beginning and that there's no cleanliness about it you know what i mean like that the, the the family is like dirty to begin with and that you think that they're going to infect this family but it's like their infection is like pretty tame like yeah, I they mean, just want parasites are gonna kill you though is the thing like some parasites just need a host to survive yeah i guess but i just think that that's boring it wasn't quite it's an interesting concept like okay so here like how does the the these two families from opposite sides of the coin intersect and obviously the poor family is like good at conning so it was interesting like how they got each family member into the house from beyond that, it feels like we have to introduce this wacky element like, oh, the the previous maid's husband lives in the basement. Mm-hmm. I just felt like that was like a way to be like, how do we get these two ends? Like you said, I at the end, I want, you know, somebody to get st- I want one of the family members to die and I want somebody to get stabbed. Like, how do we bridge these two together instead of like the movie just like flowing naturally? It feels like they just plop something in there to get from to the other point, you know? Right. Like, what, what is the point of having that other than to be shocking? You know, like it, what it would have been different if like the family, the rich family kept that guy down there. Right. And, and they because the the maid, the previous maid knew something about the family. So they said, you're going to keep working for us, but we're going to keep your husband down there. And if you say anything, we're going to kill him or something like that's that. That's pretty dark. But that's what I'm looking for, especially from a director, you know, who's made very shocking movies before. Yeah. All right. How what would you score it out of ten? I would say six out of ten because the performances were very good. the d- The guy who plays the the actor who plays the dad is an excellent actor. Everything he's been in, he's fantastic in. He always transforms his body and his mannerisms to fit the narrative. He's excellent, and the family was good as well. And there was a lot of cool use of CG that you didn't really notice, like the block that they lived on. Um, was like real buildings, but the background was CG so that they could flood it uh, for that scene where they come home and it's raining. Uh-huh. Just like little uses. How of did you c- know that? Because uh, I watched uh, behind the scenes and they showed how they constructed the set because they needed it to flood in a very specific way and they couldn't do that like on a real street. Yeah. Um, there's also some CG when they're walking from the, the rich house to their house as well. Like they're walking through the city and it's like all flooded. Mm-hmm. Um, but just like little things like that I like like how how do they make something so simple but it's all fake you know and it just it, you know it's not like a spaceship comes down and it's all CG it's just like a background and lighting and things like that and how they make it look totally real because I believe that I was like oh wow they actually like closed down that street somehow flooded each business <laughs> like how did they do that mm-hmm. but it was all you know just fake I think that stuff is really cool mm-hmm. but just was not shocked you're a tougher critic than me yeah I don't know I just feel like uh, it's okay to to like push things a little bit more. Like I think we can handle it as like a society. 
That wasn't his vision for this movie. Yeah, and I just think that that's like boring. All right. All right. Yeah. Next. Okay. What would you give it? You didn't say what you would give it. Seven out of ten. Okay. So let's talk about another movie that we saw in the theaters that has gained like I don't know rabid acclaim that we were very lukewarm about was Uncut Gems. I think that we warmed up to it like way after the movie was over when we were talking about it amongst ourselves. I wouldn't say warmed up. I think we just came up. We like wrote the movie differently. Yeah, like, like the Uncut Gems is like somebody saying, "How do we make people stay on the edge of their seat for two hours?" Oh my god, we were watching this but, movie and it was like, "Get me out of here!" I physically did not want to be seated watching that movie any longer. Th- that was your experience. My experience was that I was bored. <laughs> Like, it just felt too long, and it was just annoying, like, that that tension is uh, translated as yelling. Mm-hmm. You know, like, the only tense scene that I liked was when they're trying to get the door open. Kevin Garnett is trapped in the little anteroom. I hated that so much. And they have to, like, trick the magnetic system into opening. And I thought that was really clever because it involved more than just yelling. There was an action to the scene. There's many moving parts. Because Kevin Garnett is about to leave with the gem. And you're like, no, 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 don't go. And Adam Sandler gets his assistant to put the little shavings into the metal detector to, to fool it. And then he gets up and he puts the little um, chisel in it. And I was like, that's going to come back. Because they showed like a long, tight shot of that happening and then mm-hmm. his hand leaving it. So it was a nice setup that then later paid off very positively for Adam Sandler's character. But other than that, I just thought... It was annoying. It was like a Robert Altman movie where they're all talking over each other and none of the dialogue is important. Mm-hmm. And then like the directors were like, oh, that's tension. But it's not. It's just annoying. Like t- the tension was whether or not he's going to get the door open and there was action to it. If they had just yelled and they were just pulling on the door and yelling and yelling and then it opens, you're like, oh, what was that all that waste for? If we rename this movie, what would you rename it with our plot? Well, maybe we should explain our plot first. Yeah, go ahead. T- talk about Opals. <laughs> okay. Talk about him. So go ahead, go on now. This, <laughs> Lay plot, it on me. <laughs> the plot of this movie is there's an opal that's uncut. It's like just roughly like taken straight out of the rock, and uh, Adam Sandler has paid for it to be smuggled into the United States so that he can sell it at auction for many times what he paid for it. So that's the basic gist. What I know about opals, and probably most people that have seen this movie do not know about opals. I only know this because I have an opal engagement ring and because I've learned a lot about opals over this last year. They, It's considered very unlucky to buy one for yourself. And, of course, this is just a superstition that's create was created by, like, De Beers Diamond mm-hmm. Company to, like, encourage people to buy diamonds instead. Um, but opals are have always been thought to, like, have mystical powers. They, like, contain every color of the rainbow. They're very special gem, which, of course, is, like, why I wanted one for myself. Mm-hmm. Greedy. Um, <laughs> I'm like, special. You're like, I so am cool every color of the rainbow. <laughs> so cool and interesting. I definitely want one. I don't want a diamond. And then I saw diamonds later and I was like, I like diamonds. <laughs> I like diamonds. After seeing this movie, I, I hate opals. <laughs> well, they, they have like an interesting sequence in the movie where they take you inside the opal and it's like futuristic synth music. I actually really enjoyed that. But um, okay. they base that on like, there's a famous photographer who does that sort of stuff who like, you know, takes macro photography mm. of like gems and like that inspired. I agree. Yeah. It was very interesting because you're going through it and you're like, okay, this is a multi-layered type of stone. Yeah. Just like Adam Sandler is supposed to be this multi-layered yeah, person. And the other thing about opals is they flash 
different colors like based on where you look at them from sure so whatever so that's the thing about opals they're like very special there's like a lot of superstition tied to them right and they're specifically considered bad luck if you buy it for yourself. So, like, knowing that context really changes a lot of the meaning of the movie for the better, I think. Like, it really adds another layer to it. Um, to me, the movie is all about, like, everything is good luck and bad luck. It depends on where you stop the story. <laughs> right. Um, and so Adam Sandler's character goes through, like, a lot of trials and tribulations that are, like, oh, something terrible happens. And then... S- that leads you to something good that happens and then that leads you to something bad that happens it's all like up and down and up and down it's very exhausting to watch this journey i i truly found it physically stressful to be watching people yell at each other for two hours yeah it just and they didn't even say or hint at that opal stuff which i thought would have been so smart Right, like it really clarifies the movie a lot. A lot, but, right? But like it, it almost there is shouldn't the whole be crux that, of the movie. Yeah, there shouldn't be that like that like gateway to the entrance of the movie is like if they had if they had set up one like we talked about like when Kevin so Kevin Garnett, a real basketball player, plays himself in the movie and he sees the uncut gem and he's like, uh, I need this. This is gonna be like my talisman. Mm-hmm. And somebody in that moment, because he knew that Adam Sandler bought the opal for himself. Kevin Garnett or his assistant should have said, you know, it's bad luck if you buy that. And Kevin Garnett should have said, let me just take it. Let me take it off. You get like the, the bad energy out. Maybe it'll, maybe I'll come back with it and it'll be good energy. And Adam Sandler being a sports better or gambling man knows that sports people are superstitious. So therefore Adam Sandler is superstitious. So he should have gone along and with Jews that plan. Are super, super superstitious. superstitious. Of course. So all of that, just one sentence could have clarified the movie because then you're like, all right, he's smart to get rid of it in the context of the movie. If they say that it's cursed or whatever, if it's bad luck, then you have to go with that in that world. So now we're establishing that the gem is unlucky to him, but maybe Kevin Garnett will bring it back because he has like an outstanding first game and he puts up and he wins big, right? Um, no, and, he bets big and he did win, but... but the person that he owes money to like found out that he made a bet with right. his bookie and, and like canceled the bet. Cancels the bet, yeah. Which is totally crazy. Yeah. And the whole movie is like Adam Sandler is like just within a hair's breadth of like everything working out. Yeah. At all times. And it and it just can't. It just doesn't. Yeah, and it's like also trying to be this movie of like like a cautionary tale movie when he gets like that he gets shot at the end. Mm. It's it seems like the movie was trying to go for like this could happen to you if you don't quit gambling, right? It seemed like... Uh, I didn't feel that way at all, but... Yeah, it felt kind of cheesy that, like, I don't know, like, the, here's a portrait of a man gone bad, and, like, this is what happens to... like. All right. I didn't think that at all. And I heard an... I told you I heard an interview with the Safdie brothers, and they were talking about how the Adam Sandler character is, like, based on their dad. Sure, yeah. And they said he was, like, a rapscallion, but they really love him. Of course, yeah. But, like, I don't know, there's... N- for me, there was nothing to love about Adam Sandler's character. I found him very annoying. Yeah, not very lovable, honestly. And, like, why do you have a hot wife and a hot girlfriend? Yeah. yeah. What the hell? Um, and I told you this before, that, like, his accent really turned me off, too. I thought it was, like, too Jewy. Like, too... <laughs> Like, not even Mel Brooks does that much of a Jew voice. Yeah, it's, like, like, too much of a parody. Yeah, like, I thought... Because I'm excited to see... It's like seeing Eddie Murphy in, like, Dolomite. It's like seeing the, this actor, this comedic actor in a different role that's sort of 
adjacent to him. Like I would have liked it if he was like even the slightest bit funny. Like the movie didn't have a lot of laughs. And I thought it was going to be kind of a fast paced, like Martin Scorsese, yeah. Guy Ritchie kind of thing where there was like some jokes, some humor in the situations that were going on, but there was just too much quote unquote tension. You know, like after you have like a tense scene, especially like in a horror movie, they usually have like a little bit of humor to kind of break that yeah. tension. Uh-huh. There was none of that. I felt in this movie to, to let the audience go and yeah. then ramp up because you got to lower that or else you're going to be too high. My cortisol levels were very high for <laughs> two hours straight. Like there was just nothing. And uh, the reveal that his brother-in-law yeah. was the guy that he owed money to. Uh-huh. It took me a second to figure that out because when you first see him, you only see his profile in the front seat of a car. Right. And, and then, they don't look alike or anything. It's his, uh, I think it's his Adam Sandler's wife's wife, sister's, sister's husband. husband. So that you you figure it out because they're both at the same um, Passover yeah. Seder table. Yeah. And it was also like 30 minutes too long. For sure. <laughs> like there was a lot of stuff that they could have cut out and the movie would have been exactly the same. They could have cut out the whole girlfriend character. <laughs> yeah. Like why did it have to be? It didn't have to be her that went to the casino. Or she could have just been like a woman that works there that like he has a relationship like a friend relationship with right a trusting like family friend kind of relationship yeah i don't know it was there's so many details that i was like uh, that could have been done better just the really the opal thing would have really made such a difference sure yeah i agree i was like if i wrote this movie it would have been so much better and i know that you didn't watch it with me but in that movie mandy they have like these there's like a dagger and there's like a horn that the bad guys blow to call like these this gang that's like kind of like four horsemen like yeah but every time you see those instruments they flash like a green strobe light over it so it's like almost like over enunciating that it's like important and evil Uh they didn't do any of that with the gem in uncut gems i thought even just a little bit of a synth like like something to let you know that this contains negative energy or positive energy. Or, yeah, exactly. Like, if you give it away to someone, it's supposed to be positive. Right. Like when Kevin Garnett is holding it, like they could have done something where it feel you feel like this swell that it's helping him. But when Adam Sandler is holding it, it like or almost like a telltale heart, mm-hmm. like he feels it beating. You know, it's like so much a part of him that it like it hurts him almost to have it. It's almost like there was no mysticism in it, and I think that's what it was needing. It was trying to be like a gritty. Fast-paced, yeah. yeah. talky crime thing, but just a little bit of otherworldliness. I think would have made it more interesting. Yeah, a little bit of like plausible doubt, or like, yeah, of like, is this just the result of his poor choices, or is there something mystical happening? Is there, there? something to bad luck? Yeah, you know, is there some negative energy to bad luck that and actually? You know, the reason why they talk, I think the reason why they're like talking about Passover is because, um, well, this is what it meant to me. Like, so much of the plagues of Passover are like the Egyptians probably could have seen as like, oh, this is just like bad luck. Sure. And then when one thing starts to pile on another, they start to think like, oh shit, this is like purposefully directed to us. Right. Um, and then the Jews escaped their fate or escaped the the fate of the eldest son being born because they're anointed with like a mark that the Egyptian people, like it would mean nothing to them. Right. They put lamb's blood over their homes. So mm-hmm. they sacrifice something else in order to avoid their sons being sacrificed. So there was some mark that they, the angel of death and God would recognize. Mm-hmm. So to me, like ha- the opal itself is like sort of that mark of like, if you have given it away or if you've coveted it to yourself, like that's a, ma- a mark that the universe can see on you. Mm-hmm. Something like that. 
Yeah, I wish they had tied it in more with because they make a a huge point about saying the death of the firstborn son. Yeah, and which, then both the sons in that family die. Yeah, um, but like uh, maybe doing something with because they made a big point of the Passover dinner. Like if they do the lamb's blood, they could have done something where like I don't know if they had kept him alive that they beat him up and his blood gets splashed like on the door of his business and yeah. and like they force him inside but that's like what protects him is like he's he's like you know or or some sort of lamb like the girl's blood his girlfriend's blood is like on the outside and that's like what like a little bit more yeah something like that tie it into passover because i think that's an interesting idea or if she had like isn't she wearing like um a fluffy one of those like teddy bear coats did i imagine that i don't think so she's wearing some sort of short coat I think. Well, if it was like a lamb's wool coat, that would have been like a cute. Yeah. Whatever. But they didn't is the point. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We're writing this movie way better than them. Well, because the, the idea of the movie is like interesting. Adam Sandler is a fast talking gem, gemologist, gem salesman. Who's like a gambler. Who's like indebted to a criminal element. Awesome. I'm on board because I want to see Adam Sandler in that role. Yeah. Just like I want to see Eddie Murphy as like Dolomite. Yeah. Like the hook is great. And he commits to the role fully like he's totally not the adam sandler that you know oh my god and his tiny glasses are so annoying <laughs> whatever yeah the premise was good but the execution was just there's not just so many what ho- i was ho- really hoping for it's just such a bummer because that script really could have been taken to the next level yeah with a good editor by the name of lauren rodriguez mm. it's not legal yet <laughs> but that is my new name at work at least Okay, so we could. The only other thing that we have to talk about is the new pope, or we can tie that into what we're talking about when we get to Godfather Three. Um, let's tie it in. Let's go right into Godfather Irishman, Three. Blah, 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 all, blah. all that stuff. This is all um, your wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, you're you're taking the reins. Now. No, but just just like we obsess over the Sopranos, we we have equally. Is it time for us to watch the Sopranos? Oh, of course. Start to finish it's always again. every time we load up the HBO app oh i'm like God. oh i think we should never get to sopranos it's so tempting to just it's a warm it's a warm blanket it's your <laughs> desert island totally thing 100 sure except except for the episode with um Ugh, d girl that we hate <laughs> it's the, the one episode one. with john favreau Ugh. <laughs> oh and janine garofalo is in that too is she and um sandra bernhardt they play the two lesbians in the movie that they're oh, making yeah so stupid uh, <laughs> anyway i'm sure that sandra bernhardt and janine garofalo were like what a funny thing that we're like in the Sopranos playing characters on a TV show that's being filmed. Right. <laughs> like how weird. That's like their legacy on the show and they yeah. never bring them back. Yeah. Okay. So let's start with Godfather. Mm-hmm. You want to start with two? Cause it comes first. Sure. Chronologically. Two. Yeah, sure. No, but we should watch if we can find it. Maybe the like, director's bo- cut. like, yeah, it's called, um, the Godfather saga. I'm pretty sure it's called. And it's Coppola needed some money in the seventies, I believe to help, continue to fund apocalypse now and so he recut godfather one and two in chronological order and added deleted scenes like in uh, part two when Vito goes back to sicily and he kills don ciccio i think his name is Uh he also kills two other guys that were i think the two guys that were looking for him in the village isn't don ciccio the guy that is killed in in uh, little italy street i think that's fanucci i think it's don fanucci oh oh. (laughs) (laughs) very similar Don Ciccio is the one where he like he goes up to him and he's like an old man and he cuts him across the belly. Yeah. He's like, this is for, do you remember my dad? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I remember you. But it, it, the, the, there's two deleted scenes where he kills the other two guys that were like accomplices of Don Ciccio who like 
came to the village to Corleone. I th- I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. And there's like a bunch of other like deleted scenes and stuff. So I don't know. There's not much to say about one or two. Enough has been said. I mean, they're just fantastic examinations about family and power and corruption. And I guess watching two, because we had watched parts of two like a couple of months prior to that, like when it was like on AMC or something like that. Yeah. And we didn't watch it all the way through. Um, but this time we did. And I realized how in the second one that Michael's not really a good, uh, like a character, the character that you root for. No. But in one, he is. Yeah. Uh, he's crossed over to the dark side. Sure, yeah. And I was reading um, an interview with Coppola about how he was adamant that the second movie had to be the fall of Michael Corleone. Yeah. And it's so interesting because his dad never really faced the fall. He was at the top of his game basically when he died. Like after he got shot, he turns control over to Sonny. And then when Sonny dies, it goes to Michael. Right. But like Vito never does that. And and Well, there's two, two reasons for that. One... Because he was killed before sure. that could possibly happen, or before it did, before it could have happened. Right. And two, because we know that Vito does everything with one purpose, and that's for his family. Yeah, it's right. not to consolidate power. It's not to get wealthy. It's not to even to um, preserve his legacy. And and Michael claims that he fights for his family, but it's all no. for his own benefit. Yeah. And like it's because it's all Michael has ever known. It is the example of his father. Right. As opposed to like, and the difference is Vito had to struggle to even get a foothold in America. And he did fall in love with his wife and he does truly love his friends and his family. Right. Um, and he does things that garner respect because they are meaningful to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and Michael doesn't even love his wife. No. He definitely doesn't. He, he loves Apollonia more than he does I Kay. Mean, he deeply loves Apollonia because the only time that he's like able to be his true self is is in sicily right it's the only time like he's sort of let his guard down a little bit and she doesn't know who he is and right of course yeah i was gonna say in the context of like one and two because let's let's say we're analyzing this in like 1975 after two has come out but 15 years before three has come out (laughs) okay that that uh because in three michael's like on top again he's about to be the richest man in the world which is like kind of interesting that they go it's like extreme. Be the richest man in the world. Did yeah, because that? yeah, because um, they're uh, investing in the Vatican Bank that owns a stock of this real estate company called Immobiliari. Yeah, and by being uh, like a stakeholder or whatever in that company, that would mean he would be one of the richest men in the yeah, world. Yeah, okay. But it like at the end of two, he's he's fallen so far before he's even reached like anywhere near Vito's age when he got shot. Right. And like how tragic that is that he saw his, his father rise to this point and kind of stay at the top and he's 20 years younger and he's already on the tail end. And like at the end of the movie, he's just basically alone in his, uh, Reno. Yeah. Yeah. His Reno compound or whatever, just like looking off and just being like, what the hell happened? But it's so interesting that talk about how he gets from that place to like the richest man in the world place. Um, yeah, they probably like starts in th- investing in criminal en- enterprises. Well, in three, they go like legitimate. Yeah, right. What does um, that mean, though? Well, that so uh, you know, you know the character of Joey Zaza, uh, Joe Montaigne. Uh-huh. He like controls the Corleone family's old neighborhoods, and Michael still kind of acts as like a liaison, like a consigliere kind of person, but he's not involved in anything in the mob 
they just come to him because he has power. He has like political power. He has influence. Mm -hmm. But in three, they've kind of all gone legitimate. He has like that nonprofit that his daughter works at. And like the, the Vatican gives him like this medal of freedom kind of nonsense at the beginning of the movie. Uh So he's like, no, he's not involved in that. Cause he has this line where he says like, every time I thought I was out, they pull me back in. So like meaning that he can like really never escape the mob, no matter how much he tries. Uh Uh-huh. Which is so interesting because in The Sopranos, Gene wants to get out after he gets all that inheritance. And Tony's like, I don't think that's not at this time. And yeah. then so he just kills himself because he's talking to the FBI anyway. But yeah. how they The Sopranos and The Godfather portrays two different types of mafia. The Godfather's very classy and The Sopranos is very trashy. You know, yeah, like, but like, yeah, I guess that's true. But the Sopranos, it's G, it's G two, Generation two. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, I guess actually the Sopranos is Generation three. three. Generation two is like um, Tony's dad and Junior is Generation two. Yeah, yeah, the sixties, early seventies stuff. Yeah. yeah. So Sopranos is Generation three. So what's his name? The leather jacket guy, the one that falls in love with Sofia Coppola. Oh, Vincent, uh, yeah. Andy Garcia. Andy Garcia. Yeah. That's Generation three. Right. So you could see where that would start to get a little trashy. He's like yeah, more hot-headed. He's yeah. like a little bit more re- um, removed from like the actual values of like Cosa Nostra. Right. And like what that meant to the people that started it. Right. So you can kind of see how they, you're just looking at different points on the timeline. Oh, sure. I, I, I'm not saying that they're not related. I'm just but saying Michael like. But a little trashy like that too, honestly. In the third movie, he is a little bit. In the first two. Very like flash in the pan like very yeah, gl- well, glitz and glam like well you know thinking about tony's dad johnny and how he was like very violent compared to say michael thinking about his dad who's heard stories about violence and yes he did he does kill don Fanucci, but you don't really see any evidence to support that he was violent further that he was like a sunny type character who would right. go out and beat up his sister's husband. There was like, you don't get that from Vito's character that he used his words and his, you know, he had to kill, he had to chop the head off the snake in order to get into power. But then after that, he was sort of this benevolent leader. It's like, so like he could have killed about, the, the, the landlord who was, who was going to kick that woman out because of her dog. Yeah. But instead he just sort of intimidates him with words. Yeah. You know, he uses a different sort of tactic. So, like, even when we get to Johnny in The Sopranos, already the course has changed. Uh We've gone from sort of a diplomatic mob who's like, this is our thing. We brought it over from Sicily. Johnny is like Sonny. Yes, absolutely. Fly off the handle. And Tony's like Vincent. Yeah. Um, 100%. And it's so funny to think about Tony watching um, Godfather 1 and 2 as they make reference to many times in The Sopranos. And he's, like, thinking, this is my dad right but he probably thinks that Vito is his dad and that he is michael yes but it's not his no. dad is michael yeah and he is vincent yep interesting yeah 100 percent. they it's so funny that they they really reference it of course like quite a lot because tony was coming of age in the 70s and it was like obviously everybody knows what the godfather is right but he i'm sure that he was watching it thinking yeah i'm michael well you know because his he's t- not Tony's grandfather, I believe, was a stonemason. Yeah. Right? Who, like, built some uh-huh. church that he takes AJ to. 
So like his frame of reference is, well, if my dad was the first one to be in the mafia, then I then he is Vito, and I am Michael. Yeah, because but that's not true though, because his no, grandfather no, no. was right. Well, no, I don't think his grandfather was in the mob. I think his grandfather was just a stonemason. Oh, I think I think Johnny was the first one to be involved. Okay, uh, I'm pretty sure. But that's what I'm saying is like kind of justification to why he thinks that like. Well, yeah, like Tony's it, never even been to Italy. Until that one episode. Yeah. yeah. And, like he doesn't know really about his people. And, right. Like, he's definitely Amer- just American. Yeah. And how interesting Tony's trip to Italy compared to Michael's. Yeah. He thinks he's going to have this Godfather one experience. Totally. Or he's going to meet an Apollonia. He sort of does. He, like, I but, think that that's part of why he has feelings for that woman that he, the mob boss that yeah. he meets, because I think he has in his mind the Michael Apollonia story. Right. I'm surprised that they didn't do some sort of framing. They don't have him walking around in a tank top and a page boy hat. Is that what that's called? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, like the driver hat. Yeah. Like a, a carriage Suspenders hat or something. Suspenders and a tank top and yeah. a boy hat. Yeah, and they didn't make reference to like the little the shotguns that they have yeah. that are very specific or, or anything like that. But No, they don't. Th- Missed it, opportunity. But maybe also a conscious decision not to be like, oh, we have to do a Godfather 1 reference. I can see both options, but it would have been nice to sort of have tony be a little bit deluded or tony he, like make a joke that he's like talking to this woman he's like oh you're like my apollonia or right whatever. or he says something like monday tuesday you know like he he makes some sort of like joke like that yeah because we've seen throughout the the sopranos that he does watch these movies and he's like very interested in like world war ii stuff yeah and like he considers himself a general napoleon Patton. he he remember he watches that um i think he watches Angels with Dirty Faces or Scarface, yeah, the original. I think, I think it's Angels with Dirty Faces. Um, and how he like sort of sees himself in that. He deludes himself that the heroes he's watching in, in mob cinema are him. So yeah. like it would have been nice in that episode, like you said, to have it be sort of allude to that, his delusion. Because he has a, a a fantasy that he's a Roman war soldier yeah. having sex with the the mob boss. Yeah, but and there's he also no has other that fantasy of uh, the neighbor. Oh, that's right. Um, what was her name? She's not real. Isabella. Isabella. Yeah. Yeah, and that's like kind of more of the Apollonia fantasy. Yeah, that happens in his own backyard. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Because then he imagines her in Italy, yes. and he's a baby in yeah. her arms. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, Tony's all messed up, but... Yeah. <laughs> poor guy. Um, but I think... But how interesting how The Sopranos takes the the concept of the core family from the from godfather yeah and puts it into generation three yeah and not because they could have done very classy you know kind of like a boardwalk empire type show but like boardwalk empire is more seedy than than sopranos, sopranos is isn't even. really trashy it's just like i guess not that it's trashy but it's like new jersey it's like they're playing second fiddle to new york they're just and they're new money right right you know like as opposed to uh, the woman mob boss in Italy is like has a sprawling compound. She's like had money for her whole life. Sure, she's very refined. She knows how to move through that kind of society. And like her, her father, who is like technically the mob boss of that family, mm-hmm. is like real old. Like he's like from the twenties almost. Yeah. yeah. So she's like real old money. She's like first generation mobster. Yeah. Um. Let's talk about, let's go back to Little Women okay? and the sisters and the brothers dynamic because every time we watch 
the any of the Godfathers, we always talk about how about Tom Hagen and Sonny and how that affects Michael and how Fredo's like just cast off on the side and like what that feels like to be like uh, in the the because I think Fredo is third oldest. I think it's no, it's Sonny, Fredo, Connie, Michael. Michael is the youngest, or is I Connie think so. the youngest? I can't remember. It, they're 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 flipped. They're in the same. They're it's either Connie Michael or Michael Connie. I think it's Michael. I think Michael's the youngest because when you see them on the stoop as children, there's three babies. There's three kids. Yeah, I thought one of them was a girl. Yes. So, th- but Sunny. So there would have been Sunny Fredo Connie. Yeah. Oh, oh. So you're saying Michael's the young? I'm sorry. It's because yeah, the yeah, one yeah. that's um, you might be right. Yeah. The little boy is in the mom's arms. Th- that's Fredo. And that's Fredo. I think it might go actually Sunny Connie Fredo Michael. Maybe not, not let's sure. let's give it a quick look up because either way either way uh, Fredo is the middle child the middle boy yeah and of course he's pushed aside by Tom when they adopt him well is he pushed aside by Tom or is it just that Fredo was like not not that Tom pushes him aside but that the natural hierarchy of the family changes not, Tom is just kind of absorbed to be like the second hand of Sonny right oh did you know that Vito's wife's name is Carmela. Um, no, I didn't. No, I didn't either until this very moment. Do they call her Carmela? They always call her like Mama. Mama, Mama Mia. Um, How interesting. Michael has two older brothers. Sonny, Fredo, Frederico. Interesting. What does that mean? That Freddy's, uh, Fredo's real name is Frederico. Hmm. Uh, and a younger sister. So Connie is the youngest. Is the youngest. Then they, they fucked up in that street like image. Yeah, well, I'll have to watch it again. Okay, so the... Unless it's baby Michael in her arms, and it's just that Sonny is not there. Yeah, because I thought Sonny was behind him in, like, a little blue suit. Then where's And he's, like, acting up. Yeah, that might... Yeah. He might be sick because mm-hmm. he had, like, pneumonia. Or, or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, so the so the brothers all have a very specific, dynamic uh, car- a character, you know, traits. Sonny's the hothead. Fredo is like kind of the the weak one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael is uh, thick-headed, um, sure of himself, but kind of cast aside because he's the youngest boy, so he's not taking it seriously. Mm-hmm. Tom is like very well respected. Mm-hmm. He's the one who went to school to become a lawyer. Mm-hmm. He's not as hot. He's like smart like Michael, but not hot-headed like Sonny is. But he's taken on sort of little traits of all of the other three brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a, he can be aggressive and he can be smart, but he's not necessarily, I guess his only weakness is that he like, that he loves his brothers and that he always wants to be seen as a brother. Like yeah. in Godfather two, when Michael's like, you're the only one I can trust. You're my brother. And Tom's like, I've, I've been waiting forever for, like to hear that from you specifically. Cause even though you're younger than me, I look up to you mm-hmm. like an older brother. Now in little women, what uh, do they have similar um, type of traits and like what is the dynamic between them there it doesn't map exactly mm-hmm. the dynamic is actually like flipped a little bit and some of the characters like embody both of those things or mm-hmm. like a couple of different things sure so here's what it is in little women they're four sisters um meg joe beth and amy uh, meg is the oldest she's the most traditional she has sort of a motherly streak about her Mm -hmm. she's very competent 
Um, she knows her role in life. She's going to get married and she's going to have kids. She's going to stick nearby. Um, she falls in love with a professor for, for love, which it ends up being a bit of a problem because they don't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But that's okay because that's what she wanted to do. She wanted to. She always wanted to fall in love and she did. And then she has two kids and whatever. She mm-hmm. loves her family. Joe is um, very headstrong. I think if you have a, a word to describe Joe, it would be passion. Mm-hmm. She is the writer. She's like the one that's um, supposed to be Louisa May Alcott, the mm-hmm. author of the book. Um, and Joe is a tomboy. She wants to do all the things that boys do. The, the domain of women is like not that interesting to her. Mm-hmm. She likes being outside. She likes reading. She likes writing. She likes um, playing pretend and uh, pretending that she's a man specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, like that she actually dresses up and like... Yeah. Not like in public, but she has this game uh. with her sisters where she writes a lot of plays mm-hmm. and they all do the plays and Joe is like usually the man character. Interesting. Um, I think not because of like wanting to be a man, but beca- but just wanting to have agency in the world. Sure. Um, sort of trying to figure out what it would be like to sort of have power yeah. at that time. Joe's also, I think, the only one that um, gets a job. Mm-hmm. Um, she moves to New York and she's writing. She's like a freelance writer. Right. And also she's a, a private tutor. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have a next door neighbor named Lori who is kind of adopted into the family, sort of. He's an orphan. He lives with his grandfather. Wait, his name is Lori? Lori. Okay. And it's a man? Yeah. Okay. Uh, his name is Theodore Lawrence. Oh, okay. Um, but everybody calls him Lori, except for actually Joe calls him Teddy. Mm-hmm. Um, so Lori's like deeply in love with Joe, but she just sees him as a brother. Sure. She like really loves him, but not romantically. Is that the, uh, Timothy yeah. Chamele? Uh huh. And then Meg is the, th- uh, I'm sorry, Beth is the third sister. Um, she is incredibly sweet, just like loving, sweet, gentle, a real, she's the lamb of the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's very sick. She always has been sick. Like, and then she catches, um, oh, I forget what it is, like scarlet fever or something mm-hmm. from this family that she like helps to babysit the kids because mm-hmm. they're very poor. So she helps so that the mom can like go make money. Um, she catches scarlet fever. She like almost dies and then recovers, but really her heart's been weakened from the illness. Um, and eventually she dies uh, a few years later. But so she's the sick one. Is that the uh, like inciting incident of the movie that she dies and then everything kind of branches off in there or is that just something that happens it's just something that happens but um it's sort of like everybody kind of goes their separate ways and then beth's very sick and meanwhile amy the youngest i'll get to her in a second she's in europe so she can't do anything about it they don't even tell her that it's happening because mm-hmm. they're like we don't want to ruin like amy's time in europe sure. because of this. but they tell joe because they're in massachusetts and joe's just in new york so she takes the train home it's a, the incident that like brings everybody back together mm-hmm. which is super sad but it gives them all an opportunity to like see who they are still in in relation to their family Mm -hmm. okay so beth's very sick and then later beth dies beth is a tragic character because she's resigned to her fate from the beginning she like kind of (laughs) knows she never really talks about wanting to meet boys or go out or get a job or do Mm -hmm. something with her life she's like very shy very content to stay indoors she likes to play the piano that's kind of it she doesn't really have much ambition for Mm -hmm. herself um, simply because she's like, I think very realistic about it. Sure. She's accepted her fate. 
is she the only character who sort of feels that way about the world? Like that she's like almost the most clear headed because she's like, yeah, I, I know what this world is about. And well, she can't really know what the world is about, but she knows like, I know I'm going to. I guess what her purpose is. She doesn't. Because really, like her like, purpose talk is about her purpose, but her purpose, it seems, is to like remind her sisters like what true goodness looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, because oh, she just a doesn't have. Pur- a, she's a purity among. She doesn't. She's like the paschal lamb. Like she doesn't sure. have an evil bone in her body. Sure. Everything is like. She's just. A tender heart. Right. Amy is the youngest, and she's like often the direct foil to Joe. So okay. if Joe's like defining mantra is like passion, Amy is, I mean, she's like has two things driving her. One is like the pursuit of beauty in the world. She like is an esthete. Like she's very interested in like finding and creating beauty. Mm-hmm. So Joe, of course, who's like. Like, uh, sorry, in, in what way? Like she's painting? A oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, she's a painter. She's quite talented actually. And. So she gets to go to France. But so Amy sort of leans into like the way that women can get power in this world or even any like firm land to stand on is um, by being by marrying into wealth. So Amy is quite practical in that way. She like sees a direct line between like wealth and security Mm -hmm. Um, and like sort of the thing that ties those two things together is like art and beauty because there's. Uh, she sees value, not only like moral value, but but financial value in those things and like in the pursuit of those things and the continuance of those things. Now, is Joe jealous of her because she seems to have... They're both jealous of each other. Okay. I feel like the, the Joe character who's like, you know, she writes these plays and she does these things, but it's kind of only within the family. Yeah. Seeing her other sister like get a chance in the world to like use that for influence outside of the home. Mm-hmm. Would be like very, well, yeah, like a very contentious point. Like Joe is an is a writer though she's published. Oh, okay. At that point, um, yeah, okay. and although like a lot of her published work is like very trashy pulp sure. stuff, and she often doesn't write it under her real name, sure, because she's like my mom wouldn't like this, right? Um, <laughs> you know, Joe's Joe, I think feels jealous of or feels some kind of way about Amy because Amy is like kind of leaning into like the rules of being a woman mm-hmm. and Joe wants to break the rules of sure. being a woman. Amy's like, I'm going to succeed by playing the game. This is the rules of the game. Joe says, I'm going to succeed by saying, fuck this game. Right. Um, so they're very different, but they, they do come together at certain points. Mm-hmm. For example, Joe in one scene um, cuts her hair. She has long, beautiful hair. She right. cuts you her hair me, and she yeah. sells it um, to make money for her mom to go to take care of her father. Who's like been wounded in the war, the civil war. Yeah, it's like 1860. Oh, okay. Ish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it must be the Civil War. And they live. They live. Where do they live? Massachusetts. Gotcha. So anyway, so Joe's so, Joe cuts her hair, and she's really sad and very proud about it. She doesn't want anybody to know how she feels, and then she's crying by herself late at night. And Amy, <laughs> just like talking about this, makes me choke up a little bit. It's just such a perfect like. I don't know. I can't. It's hard to describe it. You. I don't know if you'd understand it unless you're a woman that has a sister that's like sometimes has a contentious relationship with her sister. Like, yeah. So, um, she, she, Amy finds Joe crying and, uh, 
she's like what's wrong are you sad like are you scared for dad and she's like no it's my hair mm. and out of anybody of course amy understands because that's her worldview like beauty beauty matters right like and it's and she understands um it's not just like it's not vanity it's like because there is value in like taking pride in your appearance and like making things beautiful and it, and i'm sure that joe who from what you described as someone who wants to like break the rules yeah. is now like, well, how can I now I'm like so far past that because to herself, I'm sure she seems not beautiful because she cut her hair yeah. where her sister Amy can like go about in this, you know, expectation of beauty with no, she doesn't have to wear a mask. She can just go out as herself. But yeah. Joe is now feeling like now I'm so far outside the system. How am I ever going to get back? Well, Amy doesn't have to. That's an interesting point. Amy, doesn't have to wear a mask right. in life. Amy is like, this is me. I care about beautiful things. I want to marry rich for the security of right. it. She sort of Love plays, is a choice. She plays into it, into the rules perfectly. The system was set up for someone sort of like her She's to very succeed. good at it. Yeah. yeah. She's very smart, driven, ambitious, just like Joe. Is, is she the type of person who's like, I'm going, to use, I'm going to be this way. Underneath, I'm a much smarter person, but I'm using this to gain a foothold so that I can do what I want? Or do you think that she's completely like and like beholden to the system truthfully like in her head or she like i'm gaming the system by playing it she's playing the system okay but not for any malicious reason but like just to get this is just the rules of the game and i'm gonna play the game and of course there's this barrier for women at this time so like she's obviously trying to get some sort of foothold so she's like i've got to play by these rules but when i do i'm gonna be in a different place where then i could it's also interesting too because she's a bit younger than joe and joe always uh felt like Ugh, Amy's like trying to tag along again in my like special imaginary game that I made where I'm the man. Sure. Um, and now Amy has leapfrogged her. Yeah, kind of in a way. It, they're they're both very similar people, both right. very fiery like people. But Joe um, is lets her passion drive her path, and Amy controls the passion and wants to be um, funneling that passion towards like a purposeful, like a practical means. Sort of reminds me of how Michael is a lot like Sonny in that he has these bouts of rage, Mm -hmm. but he, Sonny uses his size and his brutality to enact vengeance himself. But Michael uses other people to do that, Mm -hmm. how they are very similar, but they take different approaches to the same question, the same problem. Yeah. Like Sonny would have been the one to go out and murder the heads of the five families himself. Michael sets up, like, why didn't Sonny send somebody else to go check on Connie? Yeah, agree. You know, and why did Sonny go himself to beat up Carlo? So jo- so Joe is has a bit of that hot-headed nature as mm-hmm. well. But, uh, but Joe's the hero of the story. Sure, sure. Just like, or not the hero, but the protagonist. Right. Where, same as Michael. The audience is supposed to identify with Joe the most. She's going to guide us through yeah, the movie. Yeah, although, like... Uh, they don't map perfectly, and I think that the the siblings to the Godfather, the, yeah, oh, of course, no, the of course, yeah, yeah, the Godfather yeah. are like more kind of archetypal, whereas the siblings in Little Women um, are kind of like a little bit more nuanced. I feel like okay, yeah, uh, okay. So then that's like a, a a good point to make about how men siblings in especially in mob movies are sort of typecast. There's like we talked about Tony is the Vincent, mm-hmm. the hot headed. You know, his dad is more like Michael, who's a little hot-headed, but he was, like, considered a classy guy, like, junior. Like, he's, like, old school in that way, and that the men sort of are unnuanced. They're brutish, 
and they're Junior's ugly. Mo- Junior and they're... is like uh, Fredo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bobby, make my nephew an egg. <laughs> and it seems like, especially in these these older novels of like that paint this picture of women that's so different than what we understand of the time is that they're so much more intricate. And I don't know if well, that's the because thing is they're based on Louisa May Alcott's real sisters. Okay, sure, sure. But like even in like The Godfather, there's even though they're each character is detailed and you see sort of this arc that they go through, when you step back from it, they are just rage and fear and you know, like and things like that. They're like you can pin them to like one sort of descriptor. Yeah. And and I don't know if I mean, Coppola has brothers and sisters. I mean Talia Shire is his sister. Um, Connie. It's his sister in real life. I don't know if he has any brothers, but like there doesn't seem to be a lot of personal connection to the characters in that way. Well, he didn't write the original source material. It's no, but he Puzo's, wrote right? he wrote the script with Puzo. Mm-hmm. Um, they in, uh, they have like this whole documentary that's just about the writing of it, how they would meet daily to like rewrite the script. So obviously he had influence in as like a filmmaker. He's he's guiding Mario away from you know, the tropes and the, but, the shitty stuff in the book and trying to narrow down on the family and those dynamics. I think probably it's more effective in, in The Godfather to have them be more archetypal, less complicated. Yeah, and... Because you don't really get to hang out with any of them for very long except for Michael. Sure, uh, totally. Uh, it's just interesting how, obviously, like you said, they're based on like her real family and her real sisters, but how different a family can be when the subject matter isn't necessarily about violence. Yeah. Or, you know, like that sort of thing about like illegal activities. I also think it's interesting, too, because, of course, Michael grew up with his siblings, but like you kind of get the sense that he doesn't know them that well. No, because I feel like uh, they sent him off to school. Yeah, that's almost. right. That's right. Um, and little women, they they spend all day, every day together. Yeah. And Michael also goes <laughs> off to fight in the Pacific Theater of World War Two after Pearl Harbor. So he's gone for like four years. Yeah. And then he comes back and he's missed like sort of the formative years that are shaping Tom and Sonny and Fredo. It's interesting that Fredo and Sonny never like came to blows. Tom and Sonny. No, Fredo. Uh, and Sonny. Uh, Fredo and Sonny. Yeah, because Fredo, um, Sonny probably knew that he could beat up Fredo. Fredo was afraid of him. Yeah. And also, yeah, he was not threatened by him. So I think that probably like allowed him to have more compassion towards him. Right. And to have Fredo feel more gratitude towards Sonny than he does mm-hmm. to Michael. And they've also protected Fredo. Like they sent him to Las Vegas when they, when before, I'm pretty sure it's before Michael shoots Salazzo and Captain McCluskey because they didn't want him like involved. And then yeah. when he comes, when Michael goes to see him in Las Vegas, he's kind of like this cool hip guy. Cause he's under that guy, Mo Green. Yeah. He's become his like lackey and he's like sort of gone against the family because he's like in Las Vegas, nobody knows me. I can be loud and boisterous and I can, you know, hit cocktail waitresses if I want. That sort of thing. But at home, he's like this little mouse. Yeah. You know? Just um, like a certain corgi I know. Yeah. <laughs> like how protected he is. Is, is the sister, uh, Beth, who, the the sick one, mm-hmm. is she in any way like Fredo? Like, like, do they protect her from sort of what's yeah. going on to the other sisters like like the out are is she barred sort of from knowing what's going on in the outside world well she's kind of like too young to she doesn't go to the dance with um meg and joe she's mm-hmm. like very shy anyway she's like not yeah. super she's just like low energy sure low energy meg march 
I mean, she, low energy Beth March. Yeah. <laughs> she's uh, she's sick. Wait, like, March is their last name? Yeah. Mm. She's just sick. She just doesn't have it in her to, like, summon up the energy to, like, be part of the world. Yeah. So, like, in some ways she is like Fredo, but she's not conniving or um, she doesn't have a chip on her shoulder. Sure, yeah. Um, well, she doesn't have to grow up around the Corleone brothers. Right. You know, she she obviously grew up in And a because much they're women, they, they take care of her. That's part of their yeah. thing is Beth is sick. We take care of Beth. And how interesting that in Little Women, it sounds like the, the, the dad comes in later once he's wounded. Yeah. Well, so he comes home. Oh, he comes home. And th- it, th- that's uh, Bob Odenkirk? Oh, my God. I gasped <laughs> when I saw it in the theater. I was like... <gasps> It shocked me, mm-hmm. and I told Jackie that too, and I, she was like, "I know, it was so weird." Um, do they make any sort of observation about the way that they have grown up? Basically, just the women by themselves. Do they like talk about any of that? It's like kind how, of natural, how, like almost as if they're in a boarding house or like mm. a girls' school. Does their mom have like a lot of influence, like over them? Is yeah. she like this kind of compelling figure, or is she just sort of? She is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, her name is Marmy. They call her Marmy. Mm-hmm. And because um, I would think that she was like the sh- they get their strength from her. They do. Um, and in t- at times when Joe is like the most sort of passionate and like controlled by her emotions, mm-hmm. her mom says like you really remind me of myself. Mm. And like you can see why how Amy gets it too. Like right. they, they both definitely get it from their mom. Sure. And it's just they're very nuanced. Like. I was playing this game where I was trying to think of um, the Sex and the City archetypes and like who's mm-hmm. who in Little Women. It's just not possible. They're, yeah. they're just all four of them are quite nuanced yeah. characters. Well, it, I think to me it's very interesting that the 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 nuance is from such an old perspective, like an 1860s perspective of like these women. Because like to me, the Sex and the City women, there's no way that you'd be ever to ever link up to anything that happened like 150 years ago. But it seems like Obviously, Sex in the City is about a very specific type of women. They're not growing up in this time, and they're not supposed to be yeah, this way. They're a little outrageous. They're, it's it's little comedic. Little Women also is like a woman, you know, 20 years later, writing back with fondness and love about her own family. That's what, Yeah, that's what I was getting to, like sort of this not perfect picture, but this just endearing picture yeah. of life, like growing up. And like in the earlier versions of Little Women, for example, the 1994 version, Amy specifically like really gets the short end of the stick. She's really portrayed as like a brat, mm. superficial, vain. But in this version, I was like, Amy is awesome. Uh, Amy's ha- great. Now compared to the book, the, is it very faithful to it? Or to it- be honest, I don't remember. Mm. I know I read it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe when I was ten. I yeah. don't know. Well, because it's just interesting how I'm sure it two is different. Faithful, but uh, I think, and I think there was a, another version before that. A black and white version um, yeah, before the 1994 version. But just to see like the the evolution of, you know, who is in this, who, how they, because like, I think going back to Francis Ford Coppola and Dracula, how their version of like the 1890s is like a 1990s version of the 1890s. Uh-huh. And I feel like this new Little Women really takes like a historical, like the previews I've seen, it looks very accurate to the period. It's not mocking it in any sort of way it's really making you try to like life of brian you know it's like sticking you in this place and you believe that you're in the 1860s taking a very warm healthy approach to it rather than just being like to me the 1994 version seems more like dracula where it's like over the top 1860s i mean but there are like some sort of um 
political layers to it. Like it is about kind of girl power. It mm-hmm. is about like women finding their own voices and like finding their own paths mm-hmm. in life. It is about women supporting other women. It is about like there's no right way to be a woman. Like sure. you take the circumstances are in front of you and like you take your identity and your DNA of like who you're going to be and you map that onto it and you see what comes out. Well, it's it's taking because I'm sure the themes were ve- were present when it was originally written sure. it's it now looking at it from this new corrective lens that we can actually see those well, traits I, I don't know if it's a new corrective lens i think it's like always been there in the source material of little women like everybody that i know that's read it considers it um a feminist well like, I, I guess in terms of, of filmmaking because it sounds like the little women of 1994 was not oh not a close not as subtlety yeah, yeah like not i mean it's like you know, know. A, like a winona writer platform I, I watched a trailer of it it just seemed like very 90s you know, like a 90s version of the 1860s or whatever. But it's whatever. interesting that anybody even chose to, t- to pick up that platform. I mean, to pick up that project in the ni- early 90s. Yeah. It's like, why of all the things? Well, they were doing like they like a lot of like the Secret Garden, a lot of like these yeah. kind of old. That's true. Uh, there was like a resurgence of that. Like, uh, what is it? Uh, Howard's End. Uh, there's like a, there's Bridges another Bridges in Madison movie. County. No, I'm thinking of like books or like, uh, yeah, books that are made into movies that are like take place in like turn of the century. There was kind of like an influx of that, like in the early 90s. Yeah. Like the piano um, is another one, like just sort of just these period movies that are very like elegant, sense and sensibility. Like um, what's the other one? Uh, Sense and sensibility was a little later, late 90s. Emma. And all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of. Yes, yeah. So, yeah, Pride and Prejudice is the other one I'm thinking of. Yeah, like sort of all that kind of coming to a fruition, like this very inflated look of like life back then. It's like almost like glamorizing it a little bit. Yeah. I I feel like this new one to have just based on the trailers that it's very respectful historically in portraying that and actually saying like, look, look, this is how hard it was. It wasn't glitz and glamour. You know, we're not just. Well, they're not portrayed as a rich family. Uh, I'm not saying that they were rich, but like that, I don't know, elegant, sort Mm -hmm. of more earthy. Yeah. This new one seems more earthy than. For sure. And I think that allows it to be a little bit realistic so that you can have those themes and say, this is what it was really like, and here's what you can actually pull out of it. I mean, there's definitely like people in in their world that are more rich than them. Sure. And there are definitely people in their world that are way worse off than them. Right. You know, they you can kind of feel like their house is not warm except for the place where the fireplace, where the hearth is. Right. Yeah. 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 But they don't have tears and patches on their clothes. They all are appropriately dressed. They like have ice skates. They can skate on the pond if they want. Yeah. Um, They have, you know, normal food every day, but they have a a cook that lives with them. And on Christmas, they do have like a Christmas feast. And they end up bringing the Christmas feast to these other poor people because, like, those people don't have anything. Right. So, like, they're upper middle class, sure. let's call them. Um, but they're not rich. Right. Also, they, like, don't seem... I don't know how they have their money. The father is, like, a pastor in, oh. the, in the war. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. So, like, they don't have that much money. Oh, he's a military chaplain. Yeah. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Interesting. There's a strong sense of morality in their family as well. Yeah, yeah. Protestant? Lutheran, Baptist? What, what kind have, of religion are they? I have no idea. Uh, I don't know. I'm just trying to think, uh, going back to uh, The Wicker Man, uh, sort of like, you know, how the character is very much influenced by his religion, if that, like, sort of affected. It seems like the, the sisters are, like, above that in yeah. a way, that they may be, quote-unquote, God-fearing, but they're their own person. They don't allow, like, the religion to sort of guide them. You know, <laughs> I was just thinking, if, like, if you were to map the 
the March sisters on any archetype. It's maybe like the seasons. Oh, interesting. Like okay. Um, okay, so Meg, the the eldest, is summer. Um, Joe is fall for sure. Fiery Joe. Um, Beth is winter, and Amy is spring for mm-hmm. sure. And like you can whatever you think about those seasons are like, I think pretty accurate to those characters. Mm-hmm. That's all. <laughs> And all the all the brothers in the Godfather, just the San Gennaro Festival. One's a Zeppeli. Uh, <laughs> well, so given all the descriptions of how I said the March sisters, who do you think is closely related to who? I know it's not an exact. Well, Beth is Fredo. Joe is Michael. But she's fiery, though. Yeah, but Michael is, too. Michael holds a grudge. And Joe is the one that's closest with Laurie. That's why I'm thinking, like... Yeah, it's true. Joe holds a grudge, but... Yeah, Michael can't let anything go. And I say that Amy is like Tom because Tom sort of plays into the system, but he has no... He's comfortable sliding into the family and being whatever the family like needs him to be, but also being able to walk in the real world. I would say... As like, as like a civilian. I was thinking that Tom would be more like Laurie. The neighbor. Yeah. He's like I don't really know enough adopted ab- into the family. Yeah, I don't know enough about him he's to make that. He's just an orphan and he's rich. Yeah. Well, I guess the thing is that the that um, the Sopranos, that the uh, the Corleone family has five members. Yeah, so does the March family, four sisters and Lori. Oh, okay. You're talking about Connie too, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because that, like, I'm just thinking of the brothers. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think Connie's like oh. any of them. No, she's not. To be honest. I think. Connie's and, more and of an who, outsider. And who's the older sister in, in Little Women? What's her name? Meg. Meg. Shut up, Meg. Lori is kind of like Tom. Yeah. Do you think Meg is more like their mom, like the Corleone mom? Nah, I don't know. No. She's like, she does participate in the, the fun of the sisters. Yeah, she's but she's married like, and she's outside the family? Not not till later. Oh, okay, gotcha. They're all like the same age. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. They, I yeah, think in the beginning of the book, they're like, I don't know, probably 17, 16, 15, 14, something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah, they don't sync up. Not that I thought that they would, but just how interesting how the dynamic between, because like obviously like introduce crime into Little Women and like it's like a different story. Totally. But um, and that's what shapes like the sort of the archetypes of the Corleone family is that they have to be, in the world of organized crime, they have to be one of those traits because you can't just lay down for all your enemies. Right. You can't survive unless exactly. you pick one way to be. Yeah. I think that that's kind of the same way as Little Women too. You can't survive unless you pick one way to be. Yeah. And they all pick a different way. Sure. Yeah, there's more one w- than one way to complete the maze. Some of the ways are more successful than others. Sure. But you have to pick one. Yeah. And you're sort of stuck with it. Yeah. Sometimes. Cuz like even though in the in The Godfather there's like these arcs, uh, it really doesn't work out for anybody. Yeah. I mean, Michael as soon as he gets back from the war, it's only tragedy. Yeah. There's no happiness for Michael. He's not a happy character. Right. Even though in the first movie you like him, because you're like, yeah, you kill kill Salazzo and you kill McCluskey because they shot your father. You do it. You come back and you smite your enemies and you take control of the family because that's what your dad would have done. And then two, you're like, Michael, what are you doing? <laughs> Stop this. <laughs> You've taken this way too far. Yeah. Because <laughs> like even rewatching two, I never really felt sorry for Fredo until I, like I rewatched it. Mm-hmm. Just even though Fredo is the one who turns against Michael, that all Michael had to do was forgive him because his father would have yeah he would have said you're my son 
and I forgive you. Even Sonny would have forgiven him. Yeah, but that's why Michael's such an interesting character is because he does what we wouldn't do. Yeah. And that's what you want in a movie is like for the character to do these things that you wouldn't be capable of because yeah. you want to see the repercussions of that. Mm-hmm. And obviously, like it goes according to plan that he loses everything because mm-hmm. even in Godfather 3, he's estranged from Kay and his son and daughter and his sister, Connie, sort of tries to get the power back and he's a little annoyed by Connie that. Connie becomes the Fredo. <laughs> well, Connie, too, almost, Connie. Uh, Connie almost becomes like half Sonny. Yeah. and half fredo because like she's like they should fear you and he goes yeah maybe they should fear you and she's like yeah yeah, yeah they should <laughs> yeah you're right and she's like totally on vincent's side she's like indebted to sunny yeah because sunny tried to save her and he died so now sunny is a martyr mm-hmm. to her so she protects any anything she can that's related to sunny mm-hmm. and that's vincent which is like i think we said this in part one that we did the three word review one of our podcast not part one of the godfather yeah <laughs> that th- the, in our three word review that i said that the godfather three was like or maybe i said not as bad as i remember or better than i remembered part three yeah because i remember seeing it many many times because you know my dad would we would watch them all the time but like three i always remember thinking oh this is just boring because like i didn't understand not to get into like the new pope but like i didn't understand the whole relationship with the vatican and like in this rewatch i was like oh the company immobiliari is like a real estate company i thought it was like part of the vatican like i did i just didn't understand like the moving parts of the movie yeah it's not as interesting as one or two but it is like i don't know michael trying to get forgiveness from god Mm -hmm. because he killed everybody that he knows basically and how the religion doesn't really factor into one and two but you can see at the end of your life how if you had done these bad things that you might want to receive penance for them and then like uh, dying with a clear conscience and try, trying to weave this into Irishman I, a little bit. I actually knew you were going there. <laughs> what was I just going to say though? Um, oh, don't you think it's interesting too that Tony Soprano is like, he's like three, eh, whatever. But that's the story of Tony. He can't bear to watch it. Yeah. Don't you think that's interesting? Too? Yeah. Uh, he, okay. So there's an episode of Sopranos where there is a rap artist who has a beef with Hesh because Hesh had a recording business yeah, uh-huh. and then he didn't pay royalties to like a black artist. Uh-huh. And so then the, the rapper is trying to get that money, but he, he gets in with Chris and Adriana right. and they go to his house and he's like uh, showing him all of his guns. And then he goes, he says something like one and two are masterpieces. And then he says three, it was a little bit misunderstood. So, it's funny how, like you just said, that Tony can't really bear to watch three because he knows that that's like his ultimate fate. Yeah. Is that at some point he's going to be at the tippy top and then he's going to fall very quickly, very hard. And then he could possibly it's almost it's interesting because the last shot of the Sopranos uh, before it's Tony's face, the shot before that is Meadow walking into like the restaurant. And at the end of Godfather three, it's his daughter that dies and how like he's he's fearful that whoever's going to walk through that door is going to kill him. And the last thing he sees is like his daughter. And in Godfather three, like all of this hubris that he's he's pulled back into this mob life ends with the death of his daughter. Yeah. And I don't know if that's like some sort of I'm sure connection is. to I'm that sure or whatever. But, you know, repair. she's finally he, he's he's trying to repair the relationship between him and his daughter. And he ends up like sort of ruining it because he won't let his daughter be with vincent even though they have like a weird like incestuous relationship Mm -hmm. he's like you can't you can't do that and then she gets mad at him 
So it's like none of the pieces of his life he can actually like reconcile. He wants to reconcile everything before he dies so that he can die with a clear conscience. And then like nothing again goes his way. Cause like he's just set up another cycle of violence. Cause like Vincent is now the godfather of the Corleone family. So, and he's a hothead. Yeah. And like, just cause he's like doing these business deals. Now all these people are after him. So it's just, I thought that was interesting. Another layer to the movie that I didn't see like, you know, the 10 other times that I watched it. Cause that was just too young or mm-hmm. just not analytical enough to understand it. It's not as good as one or two, but I think it's actually a pretty good movie on its own. Like when viewed on its own. I agree with that. Um, I know you want to talk about the other stuff, but maybe we could have a part three. I think we might have to have a Godfather part three. Yeah. All right. In part three, we'll talk about the Irishman. And the new Pope. And the new Pope. Yes. And we'll probably, let's be honest, talk more about the Sopranos and the Godfather. Yeah. And <laughs> we'll talk. We always do. And we'll talk about digital effects. Yeah. And that. Okay. Stay tuned. Part three. All right. Signing, Signing off. off. Ha, 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 ha.